Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Hello and good evening. Tonight we are going to do Ephesians 4. Uh, grab your Bible, settle in, and we're going to study the chapter. What an amazing chapter. Ephesians 4 um, uh, is going to start off, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just pray as we study this chapter that you bless us and uh, help us, Lord, to not just be readers of the Word, but to be doers of it too. And Lord, as you, we get to a chapter that teaches us about what to do and how to live, Lord, help our pride to just get set to the side and listen to what you're telling us and that we don't get to pick how to live if we want to be a follower of Jesus. We need to do what you say um, and we need to uh, follow your lead. So, Lord, help us in that. Soften our hearts. It's such a hard thing, Lord, for me to do, um, to just do what you've asked us to do. But, Lord, help, to, help us to, uh, to think of how to do that. And, Lord, help me to just teach it clearly and uh, to get myself out of the way so that what the chapter says speaks for itself. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are um, <coughs> we're transitioning. And the first three chapters of Ephesus... Um, Paul is writing to his friends, the people he loves in, in Ephesus. And um, it's one of the only epistles, it's the only epistle that isn't written in terms of correcting or to fix or to um, deal with some sort of church issue. And in fact, he's writing it because he loves these people. He, he's, he lived with them for years and um, he wants to say goodbye. He's in a Roman prison. He knows he may die in this Roman prison. Uh, and he just wants to send a note and send send what he says. So he has two major sections to Ephesians. The first three chapters are about how who we are as a church. And he's writing to say, this is who we are. And we're a church that's unified. We don't divide ourselves according to Gentile versus Jew. Um, and that's how God works with us as he uses these different parts of the body and builds them. In the next chapter, chapter 4, where we are tonight, and 4 through 6, he transitions and moves to where he starts to talk about how we shall live. So if this is who we are as a church, then this is how we live. And there's no accident in that order because if we are not believers living in unity, then how we live is really not necessarily giving a testimony to that, right? So we get into that. Chapter 1, he prays for wisdom. He's excited that the Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together in Ephesus. In chapter 2, he has this outlined plan for redemption uh, that this is this is who we are as a church. We're redeemed people. We were dead and now we're alive. Now we're together and we're saints in the church and the Holy Spirit's working through us, chapter 2. Chapter 3, he, exp he explains the great mystery that we as a church get to tell people about, that God has acted throughout history and Jesus Christ was the beginning of a new era of history. And we get to share that with people because in that era, 
it's amazingly good news, or in verse 20, exceedingly, exceedingly abundantly above, which is Greek uh, for supercalifragilistic, um, expialidocious. This is the most amazing thing that we can tell the world about. We're all children of God, every one of us, and we can all serve God through Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, verse 1 in chapter 4, therefore, if that's the case, um, he says, I, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you. And, and beseech in the Greek is to a complete begging and imploring out of pure desperation. Uh, so to beg, to ask for something that you don't have the means to pay back. Um, and that's where Paul chooses that word. He begs people, if we're redeemed by the Lord, then there has to be something that we do. And his wish is that they walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And we don't walk worthy because we're doing something to earn God's grace, but notice the way the sentence is constructed. We walk worthy of the calling with, with which we were called. It's because of God's calling that we walk worthy. And that's a huge difference, the difference between a works-based theology and a grace-based theology. And we have been forgiven and called first, and therefore we should walk worthy. Uh, it's the least we can give back. So, and then we get into this list. <laughs> um, this list, the first couple verses of this chapter, could be a four-week sermon series uh, at a church. They're, 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 they are defining what it means to walk worthy. And as believers, we could spend a lot of time dwelling on these. We're going to do it in about 15 minutes, um, which is just not giving some of these passages and some of these words enough time and enough attention. Uh, but we want to work our way through this whole chapter, and there's so much here. Unity begins, unity, chapter 1 through 3, implicates this idea of walking worthy. And frankly, I love that phrase, and I've been sitting on it all week. What does it mean to walk worthy? And what does it look like if we want to walk worthy and be believers that do that? So to walk worthy, we seek God, <laughs> we don't worry about ourselves, and we pay attention to how we walk and how we live our life. To walk is to progress or to go through life in a direction. And to be worthy is to be something that, that is, is the least we can do is to walk worthy or do things according to how God defines um, holiness. Notice these verses come up with a, a few different definitions of that uh, and how to do that, which is verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that unity piece, we just got done with three chapters where Paul talks about that. But this is how we do it and how we walk through it. All of those words, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with, to endeavor, all have a similar root word, which is the root word in the Greek for humility. They're all different kinds of humility. So basically, to one of the, the first part of walking worthy is to do it with some deep humility. And humility is not just to think, oh, I'm such a horrible person, but to understand the truth of where we are in the terms of the spiritual um, spectrum and where we are in terms of being saved by grace, not by our own strength, but by God's. And being humble in the sense of, of recognizing the truth of our station in terms of God, right? So the opposite, and, and one way to get at this, and these are hard words to get at because, frankly, the Greeks and the Romans didn't have a word for lowliness. So Paul makes one up here. He combines two different words, uh, which is basically positive lowliness, because the Romans and the Greeks did not have a term for lowliness that wasn't a negative thing. Uh, lowliness was like beggarly 
right? It was something that was seen as repulsive and horrible by both of those cultures and the world they lived in. But Paul wanted a word, so he put a couple together and made a compound word that was basically good humility. That there's a kind of humility that's not lying in the term that we're putting ourselves down and living in this state of self-degradation, but just honoring that we're not God and knowing that we serve a master. And that's a good humility because it recognizes our station in a positive way. Where Romans are constantly trying to climb the ladder, there's no good version of that. But for Christians to just be okay with where we're at, to be okay with our station and that there's a strength in that, that we're not constantly seeking to climb a ladder, that's amazing, right? So Romans 12.5, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't think of yourself as bigger or more important than you, than you actually are and live in truth with love in that you treat yourself that way, right? So our relationship to God is one of loneliness, right? It's the opposite, by the way, of self-esteem, to think highly of yourself. And we live in a world where every elementary school in this country it teaches kids how to have great self-esteems. And we have a lot of people with great self-esteems, but they're lying in terms of where they are in their station with God. And we have college students that want to discuss their opinion versus God's opinion like they're equal opinions. And they're not necessarily equal opinions, and that's hard for some of us to hear, especially us academic types, right? What we think compared to what God thinks isn't that important. So that loneliness in terms of how we relate to God. The second thing is gentleness. Again, a difficult word to translate. One way to look at it is the opposite of the word gentleness is to be assertive or to proclaim yourself to others. Again, look at how the world trains its kids. We train our kids to be assertive, to put their will out in front of other people. But gentleness is the opposite, to take your will and what you have to say and back it off. And in a, in, a, in a social setting, you're gentle. You don't put your will out in front of other people's will. These are tough concepts for we Americans to figure out, or anyone in the Western world, where advancing ourselves, proclaiming ourselves, and thinking highly of ourselves are just common traits in our culture. And Paul calls Christians to be different than that culture, which looks a lot like Roman culture. Instead of advancing yourself, why don't you be content where you're at? Let God elevate you wherever he wants to. Instead of proclaiming your will and your opinion, how about you just keep it to yourself and you gently back off. So those attributes are how we relate to God. The next two attributes kind of relate to how we deal with other people. Namely because long-suffering, we don't need to be long-suffering with God, right? It doesn't go that direction. Bearing with other people, we don't really need to bear with God. We just are thankful to God. So this is how we relate to other people. Less mature believers or even mature believers will do things that bug us because we're human. And anytime you spend an advanced amount of time with other people, especially in the church, especially a unified church like chapters one through three, there's going to be people in that environment in any social setting that just eventually rub us the wrong way. Paul's basically saying with long suffering and bearing with others, we need to get over it that when people are rubbing us the wrong way, it's because our heart's in the wrong place. The problem with all of these people that we have around us is that we're all sinners. So anytime we spend time with people, that's gonna get difficult. So walking worthy means putting up with other people. Even better, we kind of bear with them. Bearing with them makes it almost sound like we're putting up with bad behavior. 
And that's not a good translation. The, the bearing here is more like we would say pre-bearing or forbearing. It's to anticipate or expect that other people are going to do things and to already know how we're going to react to people when they do them that way. How do we react with love and grace? So you long suffer in the moment, you pre-bear or you forbear with people by knowing what's going to happen ahead of time and you still go in and love them and spend time with them and do it anyways. And then we endeavor to keep. Keeping the peace or being a peacemaker in the church is essential to the church staying unified and to be one of those people that actually helps make peace by not antagonizing, by not going into situations, by not putting your will in front of other people. These are the things that we should be actually seeking and planning for, a lot like forbearing. We endeavor to keep the peace. It doesn't say that our goal in the church is to keep agreement with everybody. It doesn't say, and I think we can learn a lot by what Paul's not saying here, he doesn't say that we should all be keeping a common indignation about something and we should be rallying around an issue. It doesn't say that. That's not unity. Or it doesn't say we should be huddling in fear together about something and, and blocking off the rest of the world and running away with and just being a unified church that separates itself completely. It doesn't say any of that. It simply says to endeavor to keep the peace within the church. Peace, the Greek word there is irene, means tranquility, harmony, between people, to be secure in the presence of others. It's the opposite word of rage and fury. And you go all, back, all the way back to Genesis 1.1, when God looked upon the, the deeps and they were chaotic and he brought order to the universe. Same thing in the church. We should be looking to keep the peace or endeavoring to look out at the peace, the chaos of humanity, the messiness of humanity, and create order and tranquility and harmony in a way that we can all work together, we know what to expect of each other, and we can live life together in a peaceful way. This is part of walking worthy. Now, if you watch a lot of Hollywood movies and TV shows, that doesn't sound like a lot of drama. It actually sounds like peace. And that where it might be fun to watch drama on TV, we don't necessarily want that in real life. Everything doesn't have to be a big issue. Everything doesn't have to be politics or a fight or deciding what color the curtains are going to be in the church right? Just roll the dice and pick a color. It doesn't matter. And our will or our opinion about all these little things that split churches way too more than they should are things that drive the unity away because we have everybody fighting for position. So what does it look like in the church if we're not fighting for position? Another way to look at these first few things is that they might be progressive. If we walk worthy in the church, if you walk worthy in the world, it's like putting a flag out and saying what side you're on. Even today, um, if we have people walking worthy when it comes to uh, sexual purity, and you say, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna wait until I'm married for that, or I'm not gonna get married and I'm never gonna do that. It's almost like telling people that you are that you are a mass murderer. And the reaction that people have when you do that is that you're weird, you're you've you've joined a cult, you're doing something different when all you're saying is I'm trying to walk worthy trying to do something that, that holds myself pure to God's law. Anytime you try to walk worthy, it's like announcing to the world that you're ready to have arguments about things. And as a peacemaker, we don't want to have arguments about things. We're just trying to do what's right in our life. So if we walk lowly and gently, we're going to make ourselves an easy target, right? If we suffer with being a target, 
Others are going to then persist and continue in it, which then requires us to bear it with love. And as we love, others will come to hate us because they're not affecting us. They're not shaking our foundation. And if we, if we have people that hate us and we endeavor to keep unity, you're going to have others that endeavor to divide, right? It's like having two sides to a story. There's those that live for themselves and those who live for Christ. And those that live for Christ, we should expect that when we do these things, there's an opposing spiritual force out there that will conflict it with the opposite. If we are bonded and we are servants to peace, there are others we should expect that are not bonded. They're not servants of this Holy Spirit. And they're not committed to that. They live according to their own law. Like it says in Judges, everybody does what they think is right in their own eyes. So it's progressive, but it ends with Despite that conflict that might come of walking worthy, it ends with a better relationship in the, with the Holy Spirit. We become at peace not only with, amongst our church members, but we come at peace with ourselves and we come at peace with God because we're walking worthy according to what he walked to. Our job then is to just start walking worthy and then the response is that we are blessed by the church as we listen and we serve and we wait on God. Not as we try to promote ourselves or we try to advance ourselves or get our next accomplishment, but as we wait on the Lord, we're blessed by the Lord and there's peace in it. Paul's wisdom, just something that, and I, I won't spend as much time on the coming verses, but look at how many different ways you can unpack these verses. You could think Paul's one of the most brilliant people ever because of the way in which these things lay out and are laid out. And like most epistles, you see pastors doing two, three verses on a Sunday morning because there's so much in these verses. And it's one of the things, I just want to point this out before we keep going, it's one of the things that for me validates that the Holy Spirit is behind this. And being a writer, it's hard to think that anyone could write with this kind of perfection in what they do. Right? Paul's, he, he's, a, he's an evangelistic pastor that studied for as a priest in the Jewish tradition, and he writes with precision and accuracy in a way that's timeless and we're still reading it 2,000 years later, having to unpack it with quadruple, 10 times as many words as what Paul spent writing it. And you think this stuff is brilliant. And just to honor and respect the construction of what he's saying here and the wisdom behind it, and you think that Paul is brilliant and the Holy Spirit is really uh, brilliantly showing him how to write. So Paul gives reasons for these behaviors, okay? There's God, and here's the because of God we do these things, and there is, there is a God that enacts it. For there is, verse 4, one body and one spirit, one church body and one Holy Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. This is a key foundational point in the letter, in the epistle of Ephesus, in his letter that he's writing. The same Holy Spirit that Paul has, Paul has in him that helped him construct this letter, folks, the same Spirit's in you. I had a wonderful mentor kind of point that out when I was feeling maybe negatively humble about my ability to serve and do things. And he just said, look, the same Holy Spirit that's in, that was in Peter and Paul Martin Luther, John Wesley, Chuck Smith, Billy Graham. That same Holy Spirit's in you too. And the same Holy Spirit, the one body of the church, one heritage, one family of Christ, all the heroes of our faith over the last 4,000 years, 
It's the same God that wants to use you. And he's telling you the way to do that is walk worthy. Be humble. Be long-suffering. Don't seek to advance your will over others, but put your will back. Be gentle, right? And God will use you in the same way he's used other humans throughout history. You think, boy, that just seems counterintuitive. You'd think if you want to be the next great evangelist on the earth, that you should start getting out on street corners and preaching. But that's not necessarily the path to where God wants to do things. And if you, and if you look at those people's writings, they often feel like leadership was put upon them, right, by God, not because they advanced themselves or pushed towards it, right? They just started doing what God called them to do, and then the results started to come. In that sense, and I should condition that a little bit, God needs followers to support those kinds of people. And he's not calling everyone to do that kind of thing. So we're going to keep reading and Paul's going to start outlining what does this look like and what are the kinds of people that fall into this. So a calling in this uh, particular sentence, there's the call to be called and the calling, which is kaleo called and calling kalis, which basically imply that this is like Rick Warren says, it's not about you. Right? Because God calls you and God does the calling. Kaleo, the first one, is to call out or to be named publicly by someone in authority. God's calling you a name. And it's a good name. It's not a bad one. I hope. And God names us not because we are those things, but because God has hope that we will become those things. Think of when Jesus named Peter the rock. You will be the rock of my church. When he said that, Peter was no rock by anybody's standards. But after Jesus was resurrected, Peter really did become that person that he was named to become. He was called a rock. In the same way, Paul says, we have been called. He doesn't tell me what I've been called, but there's a name that's been called to us. Klesis, the second one, the calling, is a call to invite someone to come into something. Like God calls us to salvation or he calls us to a wedding feast. He names us, he calls us something, and then he calls us to come to him. That is not necessarily how we would, I grew up understanding what a calling was. In the church, we use this language of calling, and it often comes in terms of a purpose or a direction or a vocation in the church, but that's absolutely the opposite of what Paul's saying in this verse. He's not saying you've been called to do this thing. He's been saying you were named by God and invited to come into his kingdom. Right? So we look at these things and the modern church has morphed that word calling into some sort of a thing that we really want to do on our own. We want to find our calling, right? Which mirrors what the world says of find your bliss, find your joy, find your calling. It's, a, it's what the world does that's been brought into the church. If you really want to be doing something in the church, stop trying to do things. Just come and be blessed and let God work on you. And eventually, as you're working on your relationship with God, you're going to find that when you're going to church every week and you're being blessed by this community of people, you're going to see needs and you're going to see things that need to get done. And you'll think, oh, I know how to do those things. God has brought me through a path in life, a path in life where I know exactly how to help with that thing that needs to get done. And you just kind of raise your hand and say, I'm happy to help with that. Not only that, but I love doing that kind of thing. I have a gift in that area that God's given me that I think I can really be a blessing to the church because I know how to do it and I love doing it. So 
finding your calling, it, make sure we understand that that's not about exerting our will to go towards something. It's about letting go of our will and letting God fill that, that thing we let go of. If, if we let go and, and empty our hands, God can put things into our hands because we have some openings. But that means biblically that we wait upon the Lord, we abide in the Lord, and we serve others. Minister, the word minister is to serve. And we share the gospel and our story with other people. It, that's a calling. And that's the calling for everyone. And it's not different from what Paul was called to to what you're called to and what I'm called to. It's the same thing. So there's nothing individualistic about a calling, right? We join the church which is where we get hope and blessing and opportunities to serve and share our witness. And that should be enough for us. And it can be enough for some people for years. I've seen people that just come to the church for five, six, seven years. A lot of times because God's got to heal some things. God's got to do a work on our hearts. God's got to help us let go of some anger and bitterness. God's got to teach us how to have joy again. He's got to bring us from a false humility into a truthful humility. Right? Where we don't feel less than other people, but we do feel less than God. And we understand our place and where we're at and we become blessed. And it can take years for God to do that healing work because God sees the long game. And he's not looking for what you're going to do next month. He's looking for your entire life and what's going to prepare you for the kingdom of heaven. It's not just Paul teaching this idea. And I want to dwell on this idea because it's a big deal. And for me, this was a, a big hurdle, almost 10 years for me to get through this point through my thick skull, right? And here's one of the verses that helped me with that. In fact, it was incredibly convicting. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 8. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. So Jesus is trucking around with his disciples and a person says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I like how it just says someone, which tells you that <laughs> they're, adv they're advancing themselves, right? But it, they don't really, they're not known by the disciples at this point. They don't know the name. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm there. I'm going to do it. That enthusiasm is great, but they're still advancing themselves. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds have the air and... A nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not going anywhere, Jesus is saying. I don't have any place. I don't even have a home. Why do you want it? Why do you think it's going to advance you to follow me? And then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Apparently, the first two verses, and Jesus is just like, Look, there's nothing, no place to advance yourself here. That person just disappears. That someone isn't even relevant anymore. I don't want to be one of those people. And then he turns to another person and says, follow me. Jesus actually gives the invitation to the second person, the calling to the second person. And that person gets a calling and then he says, but, but is either a great word if it's followed by God, but God. It's a bad word when it's not followed by God. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, there's nothing wrong with honoring and burying our parents, right? <laughs> nothing wrong with it. But God had invited him to do something in the kingdom. And you'd think anybody that gets invited by Jesus himself to come do something in the kingdom, I would just be there and do it. But really ask yourself, would you walk away from that calendar event that you have that other humans are expecting you to be at? 
Have you let go of this world enough to where when Jesus invites you to do something that you're willing to interrupt your own life to do what God's calling you to do? This guy wasn't, right? Jesus said to him, (laughs) he says, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the kingdom of God. Man, what an invitation. Why don't you skip your funeral and go preach the kingdom of God? And another also said, Lord, I'll follow you but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Well, that's not even a calendar event. That's just wanting to say goodbye to your family. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you compete that against God, it becomes a horrible situation. So it wasn't really bad to do that. (laughs) Jesus shows that the whole idea with the burial was just a lame excuse. Now they want to just, you know, go say goodbye. So the funeral wasn't that big of a deal, really. I have a good friend who I, (laughs) who, who laughs when he hears people make excuses and he just kind of shakes his head and goes, lame excuses. Because we as humans, when it comes to the kingdom of God stuff, we make lame excuses for why we can't do it, why we don't have time for it, why we can't make it, why we can't be there for those events. And they're lame excuses. And you got to be long-suffering and gentle and graceful with those. It's important that Paul said those things first, right? So when we, we run into the lame excuses, we act a little like Jesus. Jesus doesn't Go after him. He just lets him go. All right, we'll do your own thing. We're free in Christ, but we're enslaved to the people around us. And that makes us make excuses to God. So we walk worthy. We follow. We preach and we share. And we abide in the church and do this kingdom stuff by sacrificing our times. So when people ask us to do things, <laughs> I love it when people say, oh, we should pray. Will you pray for me about something? And you stop them and go, yeah, let's pray right now. Sacrifice your time. If you want me to pray for something, let's stop right now and pray for something. Why would we wait on prayer? Or somebody says, oh, we should get together. And you'd say, all right, tonight works. I'll dump everything because you're a brother or sister in Christ. And I'll take whatever time it needs to go do that thing with you. Right? I'm going to get five phone calls tonight saying, let's hang out. And I'll be called a hypocrite very quickly. But how many times when you say, all right, well, let's get together for breakfast tomorrow morning, do people say, oh, I can't. I don't have time for that. I got this other thing going on or I got this thing going on. Well, then you're still attached to the world. And at some level, that's a a tough thing for us to accept. It's convicting to understand that when we are called, we're rarely called when it's convenient for us. And Jesus called these people. Oh, just one after the other. And one had to go do this and one had to go do that. And somebody just had to go take care of one more thing. And Jesus just keeps walking. And I think sometimes God does that. And we think, why haven't I been called by the Lord? And the Lord's just shaking his head going, lame excuses. I've called you 20 times to encourage this person, to spend time with this person that wants to spend time with you, to love this brother or sister in the church to edify, to admonish someone. And those opportunities just pass because we don't have, we've filled up our life with so many things we don't have time for the kingdom. In the book of Matthew, Jesus wraps up these three little mini narratives and he says to this guy, nobody having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of the God. That's the convicting part. It's the part we don't want to hear. If you don't have time for God, you're not fit for the kingdom. Man. How does that work? Luckily, Jesus has grace. Luckily, I could make 10 years of mistakes not having time for the kingdom. And I can say, I'm sorry, God, forgive me. And he does. But then he wants us to walk worthy. Okay? Dump your calendar. 
do what you need to do to follow and do what I've invited you to come do. I've given you a calling. Come do it. So this guy had a chance to literally follow Jesus in person and had excuses. Who am I to say I would be any different if Jesus came up to me physically in person and invited me to follow him? Would I have time to do it? That's the part that's convicting. That's a hard thing to read. No one in the church is higher or above one another. Paul's trying to say that. We'll get back to Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all of you. You are all equal. There's no status. There's no position. There's no hierarchy in the church. We all, there's only one hierarchy, and that is God's on top. And he's working through all of us, even though he works through us in different ways. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're all equal in the church because we're all coming in humility with gentleness and long-suffering. And God works through us in different ways and gives us different opportunities. Over here, there's a prayer warrior. Over here, there's an encourager. Over here, who's somebody who just has like a mental card catalog of who needs what and what people are struggling with in their lives. And they seek to meet needs and connect people right? The networkers. There's people that know how to explain things in the Bible better than other people. There's people that know how to just bring people in and be welcoming and hospitable, right? The engaging magnetic personalities. There's one Lord of all those people, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in all of you. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're different people even though we serve the same God. So in context, right, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. They're all accepted by God. God just maybe works through them in different kinds of ways. And we know that means that when Paul's going to address the Jews, he's say, look, if you want to keep all your Jewish traditions and rules, keep them. But don't expect the Gentiles to do that. And Gentiles, if you want to do these things, please don't eat meat that was once sacrificed to idols, but you need to walk worthy in that sense, and you need to be graceful and peaceful, um, but don't think the Jews are less because they're following rules that you see as meaningless. All the same, different ways that God works through us. Therefore, verse 8, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So Paul's citing Psalm 68, 18. He's paraphrasing it a little bit, so he probably didn't have, while he's in prison, he didn't have the scroll in front of him while he wrote it. But the way he words this is kind of interesting and maybe even Holy Spirit inspired. The subtle changes he's made really fit with what he's talking about. And I love verse 9 and 10. It's in parentheses because Paul's putting commentary on his own letter, right? In case you didn't get what this reference means, I'm going to explain it to you. And he's doing what we all do when we teach the word. Verse 9, now this, he ascended? What does it mean? But that he has also first descended into the lower parts of the earth He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he's kind of like doing a word study on ascended and and the, the logical consequences of that. It's interesting when Paul interprets the Hebrew Bible, he does it in a fairly unique way. It's not a traditional rabbinic interpretation of this psalm, right? It is something where he's this idea of ascending on high, he leads, leads the captive, captivity captive, or he leads the captive. Um, he gave gifts to men. That's a reference to a military uh, victory march. So uh, 
in the ancient world, in the Greek world, and in the Roman world, when a general would win, they would ascend the steps of the city and come to the ruler of the city. And, you know, the Romans even had laurels. There'd be a parade. People would throw things that were nice and like flowers. They would clap and cheer and applaud. And they would lead in this um, procession. They would have the leaders of the opposing army captive. And they'd put them in shackles and they'd parade them through the city with the armies. And those people they'd throw rotten tomatoes at and, and jeer and boo them. And then they would take, a good general would take of their laurels and they would start distributing gifts to their generals and their lieutenants and to the people of the city. And then those gifts would be from the, the loot of battle. It's interesting how Paul uses this passage when he talks about the gifts that Christ gives out. He's referring to those gifts almost like they're battle victories. He's won the victory and he's going to give the gifts out to all of his people. Those people that walk worthy, he's going to give gifts. And the gifts are not given in equal measure. Just like a general of an army would give greater gifts to the people that serve have served him the greatest. And those gifts will be uh, allocated differently, even though there's one general and one king. Right? So... I love how Paul uses this and his interpretation of it is the idea that he had to descend into the lower parts of the earth. He's talking about Jesus coming to earth as a human, taking on an earthen vessel and a heavenly, untaintable spirit is within him and he then ascends back to heaven. And that's how he's interpreting, he's saying this is a messianic passage. Jesus then also conquered the enemy and then the idea of taking captivity captive, the whole idea of being a prisoner is what Jesus takes in battle. Like we're not going to have prisoners or captives anymore. That the spirit will be free from anything Satan wants to do on this earth. So Paul's phrasing of that, I think, is very applicable to Jesus and even Holy Spirit inspired. And Jesus too gives out victory spoils. He gives out his gifts. Verse 11. And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Five aspects to the ministry. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Oh my goodness, you could do a five-part sermon series on this and say, what's an apostle, what's a prophet, and go through the whole Bible and put together those definitions so that we can understand what this looks like. We're going to do it in about five minutes. So there used to be... Um, each one of these things have been so used in the church and in the English language influenced by the church that most of these are just kind of, you know, phonetically similar to the Greek words. So apostles is apostolos, prophets is prophetas, evangelists is euangelistes, pastors are poemen, and teachers, uh, didaskalos is totally different, but we'll get to that in a second. So these words have been at one point were terms that were not ranked as highly as we rank them in the church. You say someone's an apostle, that's like a top rank in our church. But Paul was using terms that when they were first used, an apostolos is just a messenger or a delegate of the king. Someone that's been sent by someone else to speak someone else's words, and they share the words of their master perfectly. They mirror their master perfectly. That's an apostle. Someone who brings the words of Jesus to other people and they do it um, 
so that others can hear what they're saying. They don't interpret, they're not explaining, they're not teaching things, they're, not, they're just bringing the message to people. Jesus died for your sins. You can be free from the bondage of sin if you choose to follow Jesus. And people just bring that message. And I think of one of these people, these people that would simply go and bring the words of somebody and show them what that looks like, or they bring other people in to hear the teacher. They're the inviters. And I think of Andrew, how he went and got his brother and said, why don't you come and hear this Jesus guy? Andrew didn't do any of the preaching. He just brought people to the table. And I remember one of the churches we went to in Ohio, that was kind of what they told their congregation. You don't have to explain things to anybody, so don't wait until you feel confident explaining things. Just bring people to church with you. And we'll do the explaining, and we'll take care of that for you. Prophatus, prophets, is to speak forward, to advance something or make it known, to be an interpreter of hidden things so that they become mysteries. And we talked about that in Ephesians 3. So a prophet is someone who shares the mystery of God's. Well, goodness, we use the word prophet and it's like somebody who predicts the future. But that was, a, that was a prophetess in the Greek world, someone who predicted the future, and we've conflated that. The word Paul's using here is to simply make hidden things known. And that, for the Greeks, meant making the future known. But I think to Paul, I don't know if that's what's going on here. It was to share the mysteries of God. Like Philip did in Acts 8, verse 20, and he walks up to the, the people traveling south and he says, do you understand what you're reading in that, they're reading the Bible or the, the Torah. They said, do you understand what you're reading? And they said, no, I need some help. Can you explain this? And Philip takes the time because he's got the opportunity and he says, let me go through it with you right now. Let's not plan this for a week from now. I don't want to meet you on another caravan ride. Let's go through it right now and let me explain to you the mysteries of the gospel. I think in that sense, Philip was acting as a prophet according to how Paul's defining it here. Evangelistes, evangelists, are a bringer of good news. They're a herald, right? They are tiding, they bring good tidings. They're, they have a word for just heralds that bring news, but this is a herald who brings good news. They're shouting it and proclaiming it, right? So they, and they come to the masses and they're loud. So in Proverbs 25, 25, it says, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Then Paul stood up, beckoning with his hand, Men of Israel, and you that fear God, give me an audience. It, the Evangelistes is a come one, come all, stand on a soapbox, the person who speaks to the crowds and announces the word to people, right? So Paul in Acts 13 that idea of just bringing good news from, from another place and sharing it with people. That's evangelists. And we still use that word fairly clearly. Pastors blew me away. I think a pastor is the guy who's in charge. And there's some truth to that. In the kingdom, the guy who's in charge is the one who serves the most. A poeman is a shepherd. Literally somebody who cares for the animals while all the adults take care of business back in town. Right? It's a lowly position, a pastor. A pastor is one who cares for the wealth of the household. So they're the caretaker of these sheep and these herds and these, the, the cattle and the crops. And they make sure that nobody steals them. And they protect the flock from wolves. And they keep people um, away from the wealth of the household. And pastors do that for the body of Christ. Right? When you have people that come into the church, the preacher, the pastor, is the person who manages those people and takes care of them. 
So which example do we have of that? Jesus. He called himself not a shepherd. He called himself the shepherd, right? He's the greatest of the caretakers of the church. A good shepherd, a poeman, is the same word as what Jesus used to describe himself. Only um, in, G in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives life to his sheep. And he said to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus asks Peter to be a sub-shepherd and to care for the flock and to make sure that wolves don't eat them and thieves don't steal them and take them away, that they hear the word of God and that they develop and grow in maturity and faith in all humility, in long-suffering and in gentleness and in forbearing others. They care for them. They protect them. They listen to them. They guide them. Then we get teachers, didaskalos. A teacher is a lot like we use the word now, only it's specifically in a religious context. It's someone who teaches people the ideas of the faith, similar to a prophet. And they do it in a religious context, usually over time, where a prophet might explain something like Philip did and really make a difficult concept known to us. So Ravi Zacharias, right? Let's take the toughest ideas of theology and have someone who is good at explaining them explain them. That's a prophet. A teacher is someone who teaches over time, that teaches the entirety of the Word of God. A good teacher will walk you through all of the ideas, right? A good prophet explains the tough ones. So Jesus is called a master or a teacher by a lot of his disciples because he's spending three years with them, walking them through all of it. And they call him rabbi, teacher, the one that you follow for a long term, someone becomes like their teacher, so they're also a model of what the faith looks like. All of these positions are humble and servant positions. We're helping other people become children of God and to walk worthy in the way that they want to walk worthy. So notice how Paul lists these out, and he picks these really high, humble kind of terms. So we look at how that looks and we look at these people that teach like Peter and John in Acts 4 and they just spend time working with people helping them to teach it. Apostles are diplomatic. They're bridge builders. They're inviters. Prophets are explainers and they bring clarity to the church. Evangelists are loud and they proclaim it and we're just so happy there's people like that out there. And then you got pastors, these quiet, loving, peaceful uh, sheep herders that keep the wolves away. And then you got teachers, people who disciple and guide other people over long periods of time. Two commonalities. Notice that the role that we have in the kingdom is a gift. I'll read that again. He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists. God gives those roles as a gift. We don't pursue those roles. This is where sometimes I wrestle with the idea of seminary, someone who's decided they're going to be in one of these roles, when learning the Word of God should happen within the church. It should be part of what well, we're training everybody to know the Word of God. So when people advance themselves into these roles, that sets a red flag up. I don't see that in the Bible. What I see in the Bible is that Jesus puts people into these roles because there's people that have questions and somebody says, I think I can answer that for you. And it becomes a very organic and natural thing when you have a healthy church where people are walking worthy. Jesus picks them. Jesus places them. Jesus gives them purpose. What's the purpose of all this? Paul says in verse 12, it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
to share the good news and to live and walk in peace with each other in a unified church. That's why we have these people. These people help build a healthy church. And we need different personality types and different kinds of people to fill all these roles. The purpose then is to serve and edify. And what's missing here that blows me away is the purpose of these people is not to convert anyone. J. Vernon McGee used to say, people would ask me, how many people have you converted to Christ? And J. Vernon McGee would say, well, in truth, friend, I haven't converted anyone, not one person. And he would say that because the idea was God does the converting. The Holy Spirit changes people's hearts. We don't do that. We don't argue people into the faith. And I think sometimes that's been one of the ways in which we've twisted the idea of evangelist. That evangelists just mentally convince people to be in the faith, but that's not what good evangelists do. Good evangelists present the gospel in such a way that the Holy Spirit moves on people's hearts and they make a deal with God, not a deal with the evangelist. So the purpose of these roles is to equip the saints, people that have already decided to follow Christ. We want to equip them and teach them in the ministry. Ministry is work or service for the edifying of the body of Christ. To edify is to nourish something or to build it up over time. Man, I want to go to this church that Paul's talking about. And you know, Paul's writing this to his friends in Ephesus saying this is what it's all about. So I'm sure the Ephesians struggled with doing this. And to hear a letter like this would be encouraging them. Notice that it doesn't say here that we accuse people when they mess up. We encourage people. We edify the body of Christ. right? We don't create legalism around the body of Christ. We don't make a bunch of rules around the body of Christ. We edify people that are seeking to walk worthy towards Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we're not there yet. And I, Paul, I'm sorry, but I still don't think we're there yet. But the goal is clear. Just like the law defines sin as the thing not to do, Paul's defining here's what walking worthy looks like is this is where we want to get. And just in the same way that all of us are sinners, we're all pursuing how to walk worthy. All of us, until we all come to the unity of the faith that we become unified in this idea that we're all marching towards Jesus together. To be to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Are we ever going to get there? No, but that's the goal. And you set the goal because that's where you want to be. I want to be just like Jesus in every way, shape, or form. Are we always long-suffering of other people? No. Sometimes we lose it with people. But we apologize. We're working towards that in unity. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men in the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. You know, if we're unified in Christ and we're mature in our faith, then we don't become like children bickering with each other. We don't argue over dumb things because we're looking to Jesus, the big thing. We don't debate about certain ideas and we don't have... We're not tossed to and fro. I'll come back to Let me finish this section. But speaking in the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Christ is the boss from whom the whole body joined and knit together from what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So this idea of edifying the church, Paul has built on it. Um, with another one of these passages that you could slow down and do a sermon on each 
portion of a sentence about what this means. <clears throat> Paul uses the image of the body um, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Colossians 1, Romans 12. He uses this image of the body as the church. Christ as the head of the church and all these different parts, but it's still one body doing one thing. So where the Gentiles love the Lord this way and the Armenians love the Lord this way, and the, the, there's different parts in, of this body that do things in slightly different ways, but together they're advancing the message of Jesus to the world. If the church looked the same in every country and every place around the world, it probably would have varying degrees of success because it looks the same and different cultures would respond to it. But Jesus has brought people that can bring the message of the gospel to every culture. So the music looks different. The buildings look different. The dress and clothing rules look different in different places of the world. But the message, the unity is in Jesus Christ. That's what matters. One head doing together, doing a work. It says, till we all come, the primary work then of the church and people trying to walk worthy, the work is to develop mature believers. If your whole church is full of a bunch of baby Christians that can't figure out how to walk in the world or seek purity, then you're not necessarily equipping the saints. And that becomes a problem. Unity in the faith. He restates his point here about why he's writing all this. The knowledge of the Son of God. Directionally, we know God, but we do it better when we're together doing it. It's hard to study the Bible on your own, I think. It's a lot easier to study the Bible when you have people to talk about it with. It's why we do Bible studies. Right? It's, it's, it's that you have this set time that you meet and you're going to progressively work through the revelation of God because you want to get to know him better and learn it better. When we do it together, we can call each other out when we're walking astray too. And we can admonish one another in the faith. I think it's a healthy thing when a brother or sister in Christ calls their good friend. In, they bring truth in love, as Paul says here, to do that with each other. But we speak in truth and love, verse 15, so that we can all grow up. And we can stop being babies. The knowledge that we see in this passage um, that Paul's talking about is epinosis, which is precise and correct knowledge. It's not to know God because we feel God. It's to know God accurately and we understand the law precisely and we have a correct knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul uses in this passage. So it's not to know somebody like you know a friend. It's to know somebody like you know a subject that you've studied for years and you know it back and forth. Everyone should get their doctorate in Jesus and we should know Jesus' character. We should know what he's said and we, should know, and we should recognize it in other people when they become more like Christ. So this idea of to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus, well, nobody can be perfect. But again, Paul's setting this standard. This is where we're going. We don't follow the law because we have to. We follow it because we get to. We don't try to strive towards the fullness of Christ because it's a law or a rule. We do it because we love the Lord. We've been given an invitation and we're taking that invitation. If a friend invites me to a dinner, <clears throat> I want to go to that dinner and enjoy it with my friend. If they enjoy it, invite me to a feast, then I want to go for the food. And I think both are true here. Not only do we want to pursue this unity he's talking about because there's a fullness of Christ, but we also want to go because of this is going to be an amazing feast. And what there is at the other end of it is wonderful. Perfection then is the work of striving towards perfection that Paul's talking about. We're running a race, he says in another letter. 
And as a runner, as an athlete, we put everything we have into it. Another interesting phrase in this passage is to be tossed to and fro. The only other place in the Bible where we see this, this phrase is in Luke 8.24, and we can see the common meaning in the Greek of this. To be tossed to and fro is when a boat gets thrown about by the water in the middle of a storm. And in Luke 8.24, it says, Then he arose, Jesus, and he rebuked the wind and the to and fro, and they ceased. There was a calm. And, and, and it gets interpreted in, in my Bible, the raging of the water. But it's the same word that we see in this verse, this to and fro. So you could read this idea too that um, we're not to be children tossed by the raging of the water and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Every storm that comes in the world tells us what we should get all worked up about. Every news cycle tells us what we should be indignant and upset about. And the world constantly wants to loop us into their drama, but people of Christ know that God's on the throne. We know that God's in charge, so we don't get tossed to and fro with every round of drama that the news system wants to bring us. But it's not just the news, and we can't just blame the news system. We, this happens in every community of people that are world-focused. There's always some piece of gossip or piece of drama or salacious information about somebody in that group that's the new thing that we're talking about this week in the office or in our families or with our friend groups, right? This is the next big thing that we talk about and we whisper about it and we talk about it. That's the storm. That's the rage that's going on in the world that tosses us about to and fro. And I love how Jesus responds to it. He rebukes it. Knock it off. He yells at the storm and the raging of the water ceased and there was calm. Paul wishes for the church that it's not whipped about by everything that comes up, that we're not going with the newest hot button issue, right? That we didn't start the fire, you know, and it was one of those things. We're not going to just follow everything that comes up by the trickery of men. We're not deceived by people that want to water down the gospel, Right? We're not deceived in that sense or the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And I think of how Nehemiah writes about the plotting that was trying to get them to stop from rebuilding Jerusalem. And there's these wonderful chapters in Nehemiah that show how the world tries to attack the work of God. And sometimes they get to the point where they're actively working against the, work, the will of God. It's not just gossip and wins. It's not just people tricking them, but it's craftiness and plotting to destroy the work of God. The church will stand against all of that when its people are unified following Christ. There's nothing that stands. Uh, th there's nothing that can stand against the church when that happens. But speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. If we are children when we're tossed about, when we're grown up, we everything is handed over to Christ. We see this combo often, this idea of grace and truth, that they go together and it's such an important idea. Jesus came to us, John 1.14, with grace and truth, right? The law was just the truth. You are sinners. You're going to die. You deserve punishment. Grace and truth is not to abandon these things, but to understand that we can have some grace here too, that God who has the right to forgive can forgive. And so there's this truth in love idea. 
one without the other is kind of falling apart. And Paul prays this for believers, not just here in Ephesians, but in Colossians 1.6. John prays for it in 2 John 1.3. This idea that, that the believers will embrace both truth and love, just like John said Jesus did. This is what it means to grow up. Sometimes for children, when we teach them the rules, they'll catch their parents breaking the rules. And it's a tough thing. You make a rule for that little kid, they're going to embrace it. And all they understand is the law and the truth. And they don't understand times when there might be exceptions to that or times when that doesn't apply or people to which it does not apply to. The nuances of it are lost. Then we have other times when they get older and they become teenagers and they expect grace for everything they do. And both of them are childlike and they're out of balance. If you think that all God is is a bunch of rules that you have to follow, you're a child spiritually. You don't understand the complexity of God and the grace that God's offered. If you understand that God is just grace and love and anyone can come to him in any state and do anything they want with their life and still be accepted into the kingdom of God, you're believing a lie. There's no truth in that. And likewise, it's like a, it's like a childlike faith that gets tossed around everywhere. Every mood or issue that the world takes on, you're just going to compromise it because it's all grace and it's all truth and, and, and there's no real truth because everything's culturally contextualized. And that's not the prayer of the biblical Jesus that John says came with grace and truth. I love you, but there's laws that you need to follow. You should pursue holiness and here's what holiness looks like. So we deal with other people in truth and love even not just our friends, but even people that are being hostile to us. Well, you think, fill in the blank, blah, 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 blah. Or the people that came to Jesus and said, aha, aha, we've got you. The lawyers that would try to twist him up. These people that would attack him with their words. Jesus always dealt with those people with truth and love. And sometimes that love was a tough love because the truth was so blatant that they were a pile of serpents. And they didn't understand the, rule, the, the law. Jesus would often say, if you understood the law, you would know that it says this. And he was gracefully giving them truth to the point where they wanted to kill him. So it's not that these things are wishy-washy or weak. When you put truth with love, sometimes that's a tough love. Brother, you shouldn't be living with that woman outside of marriage. It's wrong. I love you. And I'll still be your brother no matter what you decide to do. But don't come under the illusion that God's going to use you in the ministry when you're living in what he calls sin, right? And that's not hateful. That's loving, but it's giving that person the truth and love. Very hard to do. In sales training, uh, there was a, a guy named Jerry who kind of came in and said, one of the ways that we want you to sell is like you're selling to your mother. How would you talk to your mother? So if your mom comes in to buy something and she's buying something that's of poor quality, you have to give her truth and love. Mom, that's a piece of garbage. Don't buy it. It's going to hurt you and you're going to end up wasting your money because you're going to have to repurchase something after that breaks. If your mom comes in trying to buy something that's too expensive, you give her truth and love. Mom, that's beyond your budget. It's a really nice whatever, but it's outside your budget and it's not going to help you. That tone is how we approach brothers and sisters in the faith. We come to them with truth and love. The relationship between our moms and our are not in question. It's not a question of whether or not I'll be your friend or whether or not we can be connected. It is a question as if you're going to do something where you can be, remain as a part of the community of saints in the church or where sometimes the church might need to ask you to leave. 
because in this community, these are what the things we're doing. But I'll still maintain a relationship with you outside the church. We're still friends, but this is an important thing for you to know. It's like selling to mom. And oftentimes the easiest way to do that is to point people to the Bible. You know, mom, the Bible says this. Mom, I hate to break it to you, but the Bible says this and you're believing this. And they're two different things. I still love you. Our relationship's going to be good, but don't imagine that you're going to get the blessings of God when you're denying God at the outset. Don't imagine that. Verse 16. There's so much here. By the way, there's other ways you can break down these passages, and I honestly think with this epistle, read it yourself five, six times, and you'll walk away with five different things or six different things on your heart. And there's just different ways to come at this. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes the the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul's giving a, a metaphor of this body image and that this is how the church grows. And I like the idea that in the church, we all do our thing. Everyone pitches in. And when everyone pitches in and helps where we need help, the church just grows. And there's always work to be done. There's always things to do. And Paul kind of builds on this idea of unity in the church, loving one another. This I say, therefore, verse 17. Here's why I'm saying all of this. And testify in the Lord. Paul's also saying, here's why I'm saying all this. And I'm testifying, I'm telling you in the name of God, I've seen this. And Paul's seen a lot of churches. He's helped found a lot of churches. I'm going to testify because I've seen God do this that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And here we're not talking about the Gentiles that have come into the church in service to Jesus, because in chapters 1 through 3, Paul already, already identified they're not really Gentiles anymore, they're Christians. They've joined a third group. They're not Jews, they're not Gentiles, they're one in the body of Christ. So when he talks about Gentiles here, he's talking about people that have not joined the body of Christ, right? The world. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who is being past feeling and having given themselves over to lewdness, to the work of all uncleanness with greediness. Clearly, Paul's defining a group of people that are not part of the church. And what makes them not part of the church is that they have not submitted their will to God's will. They're living in defiance of God's will. Why do they live in defiance of God's will? He gives a few reasons. They don't understand. They have a darkened understanding. They just haven't heard the news yet. In that case, it's the Christian's job to share it. Being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. They're not part of the body because they just don't know, right? And there's this idea, the futility of mind is the trusting in their own human thought. And in the world of academia, there's a lot of these people. They believe their thinking is superior to the rest of the world and other people's thinking and even God's thinking on something. So they've outthought God, apparently. It's not empty, but it's filled with nothing, right? So this idea of the futility of their mind is that there's plenty going on in their head, but it's futile. It has nothing to offer. It's without point or purpose, and there's no fruit in it. And he's testifying this in the Lord. You want to sit and overthink this Jew-Gentile thing? It's a dead end. It doesn't add anything to the church. Their understanding is darkened is to largely focus on the wrong things. 
when you can't see and you're in the dark, then you have understanding, but it's not seeing anything, though it may understand it. You can feel the chair in the room, but you can't really see the chair in the room. You don't fully understand it because your understanding is darkened. They don't know God, and if you don't know God, then you don't have guilt about what you're doing. Right? When people feel bad about what they've done, that's the Holy Spirit trying to work on their heart. So they're past feeling, is how he says it. And that's what I think happens. After some point when you live in sin or do things or grow up in a sinful community or family, you just get numb to it. And that numbness is part of the being of the prisoner. There's no life in it. There's no joy in it. But you don't feel guilty or shameful about it at all anymore. Just say, hey, when I do these things, it's great. And you say, well, how's the rest of your year, right? So it, the lewd and unclean and greedy, Paul starts to say, this is the end result. You've got these people that are doing this stuff. And he doesn't say to protest against these people. He doesn't say to try to go out and pass laws to stop these people. He's just identifying that they're lewd and they're greedy and they're nasty people. And go back to verse 17. Our job is to not walk like those people. Be different. So when the world says to do X, Y, and Z, we just say, no, thanks. We're trying to be holy. People say, trying to be holy, what does that mean? And you'd say, well, let me tell you all about it. Lewdness is to flaunt or brag about what you're doing. So there's a point at which these people will, in defiance of what God has said is, is good and right and clean and holy, they'll actually flaunt that they're not doing those things. They'll do the opposite of what they think God has defined as holy, and they're going to brag about it. They're not ashamed of their sin. And that's a tough place to be. In Leviticus, God says to take those people and get them out of the city. Don't let them be part of your church. Don't let them be part of the nation of Israel. Because in open defiance against God, you're causing a, an argument based on human reasoning and human understanding that's contrasting what God has said looking holy looks like. So don't do it. So they brag about it and they're lewd about it. Their uncleanness is a reference, a direct reference to what God defines as clean and unclean. Paul's, I think, talking about the law. They, even Gentiles may know that these Jewish people or these Christians think this is holy and unholy, but we're going to do it anyways. We're going to do it right in front of them just to show them that we can. Well, that's dangerous because you're setting yourself up as an enemy of God. And again, in Leviticus, God says he sets his face against you in chapter 19. You do these things and you're, you're making an enemy of God, not of me as a Christian. That's between you and God. Sorry you want to be lewd and unclean and greedy in doing those things, but I'm going to just walk holy. I'm going to walk like Christ wants me to walk. And I think that has more fruit in my life than what you're offering. Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. All that stuff that you used to do doesn't look so appealing anymore. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't walk like they walk. Because if you've learned Christ, you should want to put that stuff off. What about those things where I become a Christian... I don't really want to give up these things. And I don't know that I can. Maybe you even have sins in your life where you know it's sin. You believe it's sin, but you can't stop doing it. And Paul would say you're still an immature believer. You're a child in Christ. What do you do? 
walk worthy. I can't, I can't stop doing these things. I keep falling back into these sins. Then you go to God because that grace isn't something we generate. We don't make a new man in ourselves, a new person in ourselves. We let God do that to us. The first thing you do is you pray. Lord, take away the desire to do those things that you say are evil. Just remove the desire from my heart and pray it every day until it's gone. And at some point, God will do a work on your heart and he'll change you. But if you have not so learned Christ, you lean on Christ when you do these things. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. God creates the new man. You want to walk worthy, don't do what the Gentiles are doing and focus on verses 20 through 24, right? Give up everything that's in the world. And the more that you give up, the more you have this space in your life to add something in. And here's what you add in. You're renewed in the spirit of the mind. To put off and to put on is like changing clothings. Uh, so you're putting on, you take off one shirt and you put on another shirt. That's what you do when you start to walk worthy. You just say, I'm not this anymore. I'm going to be this. You tell people about it. When you meet your former friends and they're bragging about their sports team, you're bragging about your church and what's going on. And if you don't go to a church you can brag about, switch churches. Go to one where there's a unity in Christ moving towards the proclaiming of the gospel. Brag about what you're learning in Bible study. Brag about something you heard tonight on this Bible study that really caught your attention or convicted you and tell your unbelieving friends about what you're learning. Or better yet, share it with another believer with an unbelieving friend in the room, right? And we're scared to even talk about Christ in this country because the world has told us we can't. And we lose our boldness in Christ. And Christ says, if you're ashamed of me, I'm ashamed of you. So we want to be ashamed of Christ. And part of being ashamed in Christ and not wanting to talk about our faith is because we're so attached to the world, we still care what they think about us. Get so attached to your friends at church that you care what they think about you. Brag about how you're caring for other people. Brag about, brag about acts of kindness. I just saw a wonderful YouTube video today as we're in quarantine um, for the coronavirus right now and people are starting to do good news uh, kind of YouTube clips and, and whatever and, and, they're, and they're, they're basically saying we want to gather up stories of kindness and brag about them. And you think, wow, this is amazing. And this is what the church does is we get so excited about what God is doing that it renews the spirit of our mind. Instead of worry and anxiety or hatred for other people, you start to look for peace and you start to have joy and you start to love other people. And you have a renewing of the mind because you've put on a new set of clothes. You've put on this new idea of who you're going to spend your time with and how you're going to do it. I used to teach in psychology class that to actually change your neural dendrite network, you have to excite the brain so that the dopamine flows and you create new myelin coverings for new neural pathways. If you want to get yourself out of your depression, go do new things and excite your brain. And it's one of the quickest ways to shake off some of those things. The thoughts that we have amount to the choices that we make, which form our habits, which form us. In a godly sense, you are what you think about. What you spend your time on, where you spend your money will become who you are. Put off the old man, 
put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness are defined in the Old Testament. That we are told what righteousness looks like in no uncertain terms. So fasting, discipling people, adding holy is all good, but it's learned Christ. It's not learning about Christ. It's learning Christ. Do you see that phrasing there? But you have not so learned Christ. It doesn't say you have not so learned about Christ. And there are Greek words for that if Paul wanted to say that, but it's not what he said. You learn Christ. That means you're living, you're abiding, you're purifying, you're getting healed by Christ over time. It's that important time you spend in the body of Christ where you're just being blessed by the body. And God doesn't call you to do anything for a season because he's learning to know who you are and you're building that relationship with him. And there's no substitute for learning Christ to getting to know someone as your God and your Savior. We've heard him in verse 21. How do we hear Jesus? We read his book and you come to Bible studies and you study the word. I'm probably preaching to the choir on that. You're taught by him. There's actually a Holy Spirit that speaks to us and we are taught by him through the Holy Spirit. We're, at, we're actually guided on what to do in our day-to-day -day life. We pray, we fellowship, we worship, and in all those activities, the Holy Spirit flows through us and they do so in truth as the truth is in Jesus, it's not in the world. There's no book or help method or strategy that will get you closer to Jesus other than to just doing what it says. So if we don't put off the world, we don't have any time to hear what Jesus has to say to us. We have to make that time. Get to church, get to Bible study, make time for worship, right? And we do those kinds of things. We have eight hours to sleep, eight hours to work. What's happening with the other eight hours of your day? Got 24 of them. Oftentimes, with, especially in America, those eight hours are just being wasted. And they're thrown away to things that have futile thinking behind them. They're not worth anything. And you say, well, I sleep 10 hours a night, so I have six. Well, take your six hours. God will eventually change your sleep habits. Maybe. That's not biblical. That's just me. Invest in God. Sacrifice your time to God. And spend time with God's people and your mind will renew. You will change over time, and it can take years. It's important to note that when Paul gives this advice, remember he just spent three chapters on the unity of the church. That community has to be there, or these individual things Paul's giving advice and suggestion on, they're conditional on the church being whole and active and holy. Find a community of believers where the other people are seeking Christ just as much as you're trying to. And if those other people are just seeking to get out of there as quick as possible so they can go do their hobbies, that's not a church of God. It's not a biblical church. It's a community center. And it's a dangerous place to be spiritually because it's just going to keep pointing you back at the world. And when you hear those sermons, it's just going to be stories from the world about the world. And maybe they'll put up a verse of the Bible, but you're not hearing from God because you're not hearing the whole and entire complete word of God. So how do you expect to hear anything from God when you're constantly having it filtered through humans? Read the, read the Bible for yourself and take that time to do that. If you give four hours to television, give a half an hour to God, right? And start thinking about, well, where is my time being spent? And if I, if I think about that, maybe that you'll be convicted to say, well, if I got 24 hours in a day, maybe 10% of that can be in service to God. And if you're not called to service yet, to abide with God, to pray, 
to worship, to fellowship with the saints, and to do that for a period of time every day. You'll be blessed by it. I'll testify to you. Remember, Paul led this section off saying, I beg you for your own benefit, truth and love. This makes a difference. It changes your life. It's changed mine. And brothers and sisters I know at my church, it's changed their life when they came to this simple realization that to put to put off the old man and put on the new man means we have to put on that new set of clothes. And then God does all the work. He does everything from that point forward. And you realize what God's done in your life as you look back and remember what you were like years ago. So when that family of the church exists, you have a place to go where there's joy and peace and frankly, good humor and silliness and, and quirkiness where you have people that you laugh with. There's an authentic connection with other human beings that are living in truth and love where there's forgiveness. There isn't an agenda. There's just simply love. And that's a hard thing to find. And you might have to go to a different kind of church to find that. But you put on the new man, which was created according to God. This is God's plan for your life. God wants that kind of community in your life in true righteousness and holiness. You don't find this community by compromising what God said is holy. You find it in righteousness and in holiness. If we just give up what we think is right and wrong and we just do what God says is right and wrong, there's a blessing in it. And we don't have to understand why. A lot of the logic that's given in the Torah is because I am the Lord God. That's the logic. It's not, there's not something reasoned out for us. We just do these things because it, because God's righteous and God's holy. And if God says this sort of thing and that sort of thing is what I mean by righteousness and holiness, I want your heart to want these things, then we should be working on our hearts. We put off the world and we put on God. And it's amazing how little effort that takes. It's as simple as changing your calendar. And God does everything else. One last thought on that. One of the things we give up by taking off the old man is making all of the decisions on our own. Sometimes putting on the new man means waiting on the Lord until the Lord tells us or calls us or invites us to do something. And that's so hard for human beings because we want to line up what's next in our life. And maybe the Lord just says, wait. <clears throat> he made Moses wait. <clears throat> this could be incredibly discouraging. But for me, this was really encouraging. He made Moses wait 40 years until he called him and invited him to do something. 40 years. But he got his name in the Bible, right? So it was, it was one of the people God used the most to do the most to help find, to found a nation. And he had to wait herding sheep for 40 years. So one of the things we give up is our own plan for our life and what the world tells us we should do next. Give up the plan, put on God, and he can do a work. 2 Corinthians 5.17, created in us at conversion is the person created according to the image of Jesus Christ and instinctively righteous and holy. See that theme come up again? It is in contrast to the old man who is the person inherited from Adam who instinctively rebels against God. We instinctively want our own plan. And rebellion against God isn't always doing something horrendous and things that'll put you into prison. Rebelling against God is to say, today I'm going to do this instead of this thing you've got for me over here. It can just be as simple as putting your will in front of what God's will is. Try this. One of the ways to try to do this and to try to hear the voice to God is to set aside time. I remember in college I used to do what I would call a walkabout. It's an Australian idea. 
in order to be coming of age, you just start walking. You put one step in front of the next. And at each option and at each hallway and at each turn, you say, God, which way should I turn? And God says, turn right. And you say, turn right. God says, turn left. Or God says nothing and you just stand there like a dope. Okay, I'm going to wait until I feel an instinct to go one way or the other. And this could be, you could argue this is kind of like feelings theology, but it's also a time to say, Lord, I want to learn how to hear your voice. I want to hear that still small voice and to hear it, I got to shut up the clamor of the world. If I instinctively rebel against you, Lord, then help me to non-instinctively renew my mind and retrain my mind to just listen to you and submit to what you have. And I will sit here for 40 years if that's what it takes to wait upon what you have as an opportunity for me. But boy, when that opportunity comes, I've been waiting 40 years for it. I'm ready to say, yes, Lord, I'll go. I'm not going to say I got to go back and take care of these other things. I got to go bury my father. And all these things where Jesus said, these people aren't worthy of inheriting the kingdom. And Paul's saying, according to the, what is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's holy. Serve God. Verse 25, therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Paul moves on to a new section where he's going to just list a bunch of things. Like if you're doing this in righteousness and holiness, then you shouldn't be doing these things. And he's specific, specifically speaking to the Ephesians, people that are in the church, believers. So yes, people that have put on the new creation of God can still sin and they can still do things that are wrong. And Paul says, put away lying, speak truth. This is really hard to do. There's the big epic lies that most Christians can avoid, but it's the small little lies. It's the exaggerations. It's I went this fast instead of the reality and the truth. It's posturing to other people to pretend that you're bigger than you are or to lie and speak truth that lets you look less than what you are. It's interesting when people will say things that aren't true, we can edify one another in the church by simply bringing truth to it. Somebody says, oh, you're such a nice guy. And you say, no, I'm a saved guy. And you start coaching each other on new language, right? Oh, I did such a nice job. I know, praise the Lord for the opportunity that I got to do that job. It's totally out of service. If it was up to my flesh, I'd be at home doing nothing. Speak truth. <clears throat> Avoid bragging. Avoid unflating things. Self-demeaning is also untruth. We have Christians today that have been messed up by stuff in their life and they need to speak truth into their life and they need brothers and sisters that help them do that. Saying you're worthless and God doesn't have a use for you or that there's no calling for you, those are lies. So speak truth into those situations. Truth and love. Actually, God has a calling for you. He will invite you to do something in the church. He has called you for a purpose because he needs you in this way in the body. That's an exciting thing. That, but it's an untruth to think others. Don't ch take credit for things God has done in the church. That's also untrue. Lying never helps the body of Christ. It always hurts the body of Christ. And so does anger. Verse 26, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now in context, he's not saying that Christians don't get angry. In fact, he's saying the opposite. Be angry, but don't sin, implying they're two different things. Anger is a, a natural result of things that aren't done right or they're done wrong, but don't sin and let the sun go down on your wrath. If you're angry with people for more than a day, Paul says you're in sin. And that's tough. To, the hardest thing is when people call themselves Christians and they harbor hard feelings towards other believers for more than a few moments. 
And Satan uses that, verse 27, all by itself, nor give place to the devil. When we hold anger towards our brothers and sisters, that is Satan digging into the unity of the church. And it divides and it destroys and it hurts people. So don't do it. Also, you want to be angry with somebody, you're assuming you're more important than they are. And Paul just got done saying you're not more important than anybody else. Same thing. There's one head and that's Christ. So to be angry oftentimes is because somebody has crossed your path or you've crossed other people's path and they've called you out on it and you're angry. So you're either resisting what somebody's told you or you're thinking that your territory is bigger than what God's given you. You can be angry, but don't go to bed on it. Go to that person and talk to them and deal with it and work it out. And you don't have to agree. Paul never says that the church has to agree with each other. But you have to just admit that God's calling you to do one thing and that person to do another. And maybe there's times to split up. Like Barnabas and Paul had to go separate ways on a disagreement. It's okay to disagree. Just go different ways and do your own thing. Paul doesn't, he says in verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer. I used to steal things. Now stop doing that when you become a believer. Let him Rather, let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who's in need. It's interesting how Paul doesn't say what they deserve. That they were thieves, they should be stoned, and that's the legalistic approach. Or they should be kicked out of the church, that's the legalistic approach. It just says stop doing it. And that's the grace approach, truth and love. It's not admitting that stealing is okay. You don't have thieves in your church, that's going to hurt the name of Christ. But you do say to those thieves, look, if you want to be in the church, you've got to stop stealing stuff. You're a klepto. Knock it off. And the way to do it is to replace it with the opposite. So instead of stealing stuff from other people, why don't you work a full work day and then add some time to your work day and take this money and just give it away? Release yourself from the prison of greed. It's brilliant what he's saying. And he doesn't say that it's okay to steal, that's permissive. And he doesn't say that the person should be stoned, that's legalistic. He's finding this beautiful balance of truth and love from verse 15. And he's giving us an example of what that looks like. Right? Don't lie, speak truth. Be angry, just don't go to bed on it. Don't steal, do something and give stuff away. The labor word that's in there implies that you work harder than normal people or you're laboring beyond what you're required to do. To use the same hands that used to be for stealing is perfect symmetry. Paul's seeing a justice there. And I like the idea that God often uses our weaknesses or our areas of sin once conquered are the ways that we bless the church. One of the ways that prideful people can serve the church is to be humble and, and, and take care of the cleanup and to do the things in the church that don't get a lot of attention. And you can just bless the church by doing things that are humble and give up your pride. So you're not calling pride okay, but stop doing the pride, right? And start doing the opposite of that. Let the things that used to be committed to Satan be committed to God and change those. Here's another one, verse 21. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Boy, that's easier said than done. <laughs> Pun intended. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Every time we want to complain, staunch that. I think of the old song that they used to sing, Home, home on the range, where the deer and the animal play, where never is heard a discouraging word. And that idea that they're trying to teach their children with that song is 
we never hear discouragement in the church. Corrupted words are two words in the Greek. Sapros means rotten, putrefied, worn out like a tomato that's turned black and green with mold. That's a corrupted word. It's worthless. It's without quality. It's worthy of being thrown out of the door. It's sapros, right? It's empty idle talk that you wouldn't want to eat, so don't say it. So if you don't want to hear those words, don't be speaking those words. The most common thing of that in our family is that we want to come home and talk about things. And to talk about things, you want to say, well, I like this and I didn't like this. And one way to think about that is just stick with the stuff you like. Stick with the stuff that edifies. Nobody cares what you don't like, so stop talking about it. It doesn't add any value unless you want to step up and serve the church and God can actually use what you want to offer to bless the church. So corruption, sapros, is the opposite word of edification. And in verse 29, Paul is contrasting those two words. Don't do corrupt things, but what is good for necessary edification. Instead of corrupting things, make things healthy and bring nourishment. A good tomato, a tomato that you want to eat, that's ripe and edified and, and fed. That's the sort of thing you want to bring to the church. Or the Teddy Roosevelt quote, it's not the critic that counts, but the man in the arena. Don't complain about church, help build it. We have too many people that want to be bosses, but they don't want to be followers and helpers. And we need very few bosses in the world. We need, very, we need an army of people that will serve. And again, Paul's argument is Christ is the only boss that we have. Everybody is a servant. So no one's above other people. Remember, that was all before this. Let your words be edifying. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we grieve things, the word grieve is exactly what we think. We grieve dead stuff. If you want to come into the church and you're not putting off the old man or the old woman, you're grieving God. He bought you with a price and you're just, you're keeping your same sick clothing. You're still bringing putrefying words into the church instead of edifying words. Don't be the bitter pill, be the old gem, right? And as humans age, they get like that. They either get nasty and mean with their words or just every word out of their mouth is a blessing. And you think, what an awesome human being to have around. Be that person in your church that every word that comes out of your mouth is wonderful or you're grieving the Holy Spirit. I don't want to put myself in that position. I don't want the Holy Spirit to think of me as the dead creature that was purchased initially. God's trying to bring new life to me, not to grieve the fact that I'm still dead. And what makes us dead spiritually is this what comes out of our mouth. Jesus said it's not what goes into the man that makes them defiled. It's what comes out of them that makes them defiled. Read verse 29 in light of what Jesus said. Verse 31, now we turn to the heart, right? Verse 29 talks about what's coming out of our mouth. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, which is a word for chaos, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. <laughs> Take anything where you don't love other people and get rid of it. Kill it. Do it with malice. <laughs> and I love it. It's, I like the with all malice is we should treat those things that are malicious with malice. We should hate those things when we hear them in ourselves. And it doesn't say that we need to be running around trying to stop other people from doing that. If people want to do evil speaking, fine. You can have your own community. I don't need to be part of it. Right? Or if you're in leadership at church, sometimes you've got to ask these people to leave the church. 
not because of some great heinous sin, but because they are simply bringing wrath to church. They're just evil speaking. Every time they open their mouth, they're just hurtful to people. They say mean things. They're bitter and angry people. We should be dealing with that. So bitter is to harbor resentfulness. Wrath is to let it out, <laughs> right? Anger is something that we've dedicated ourselves to for more time than just when the sun goes down. And the clamor is to just make noise. Have you ever been in meetings where people complain and they're just, it's like you sit there and think you're just making noise. You're just talking to hear yourself talk is how my dad used to say it. Some people just talk to hear themselves talk, which is kind of what I'm doing right now, but hopefully the Bible redeems this conversation. But some people that just make noise and the noise doesn't add any value to anyone's life and it doesn't help. Or evil speaking, to just be mean to gossip about somebody, to be a tale-bearer, right, that we already saw, to be teasing people and hurting people's feelings, or to speak ill of someone else. We should be getting rid of this stuff because it is horrible in the church. It's destructive, and good people get hurt in these situations. So that kind of sums it up. Don't say it in verse 29, and don't harbor it or live with it in your heart either, verse 31. Put it away. I like this word, put it away from you, is the word arrow in the Greek. And it means to like, like to get air. We used to ride dirt bikes and when you hit a nice jump, you'd say, oh, you got great air on that. That's the word in the Greek, arrow. You got lift off of that. Plane gets lift. So you're going to kick it so hard in the butt that you launch it. <laughs> so slap that stuff out of your life. Get rid of it be put away from you. <laughs> Take evil speaking and put it away from you. Slap it out of your language. If you have a spouse, tell your spouse that anytime you hear something rotten coming out of my mouth, would you please just slap me? And that's in part the language that Paul's using here. Get rid of it quickly and, and, and put on the new man. Choose to not use that language and have people help you stop doing it. I also think of like getting spanked so hard that you kind of leave your feet a little bit. That's how we should treat those words when they come out of our mouth. The next time you complain, the next time you gripe about a person, you're grieving the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit loves that person and is trying to help them develop and grow too. And instead of treating them with truth and love and gracefulness and forgiveness, you're treating them with your opinion. That's sick. It's wrong. Kick it in the butt and get rid of it. Help it to get air as it leaves. Or to hook it or to yank it is another word for arrow. Like when you put your hands on a tablecloth and you yank it so hard that all the stuff on the table stays put and the tablecloth gets pulled out. That's the quickness and the violence with which we should get rid of evil speaking and bitterness and wrath and anger and noise making and clamor. Be a person of peace. Be kind to one another. Paul switches gears. To be kind to one another. It's the opposite of arrow, right? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know why you should forgive other people? Because God forgave you. You're not that special either. If people wanted to complain about you, they could probably find things to complain about. In truth, if people wanted to find things to complain about me, they probably could. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and there's lots to complain about. I had somebody who listened to one of these sermons and told my friend and said, boy, he sure says the word right a lot because I'll finish a sentence and go, right? And it comes from my teaching days. But if that's all you got out of that teaching, 
Boy, you need to slap that stuff out of your life and get rid of it. You're just killing your ability to see joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Be kind to one another. Don't say mean things. Be tender-hearted. Be, when people are hurting, feel it in your heart. Don't be hardened in your heart. But feel and understand when other people are struggling. Be forgiving to one another because God forgave you. so easy to forgive when we spend our time remembering what we were forgiven of. And I think, wow, the Lord's using me to work with other people and to be able to teach and to do things. And if the Lord's using me, what a gift. What a graceful thing that he's done. Because despite what I've done, he still reached out and gave me opportunities to teach. What a blessing. So when others in the church are tender with us, we sure appreciate it. And when we're not clamoring, we're just loving one another. Paul is sharing his vision for the church with his friends, the Ephesians. This is what the church looks like. What an awesome place to be. And it defines hope. And remember, Paul testified to this. He's sharing these things and he did it out of experience. He's seen it happen. And I want to testify to you. When you find a great church and you see this happen, you grow in the Lord faster because you learn how to do dialogue. You learn how to love because you get to experience it from all these other people that just look at you and they're tender-hearted with you and they love you and they forgive you and you screw up and you say stuff wrong and you're like, dang, I'm sorry, that was hurtful. And they're just like, I forgive you. I'm not harboring any anger towards you because I don't have any anger to offer, right? And if I was upset with you about something, I would tell you before the sun went down and you got a whole community of people that can just trust each other in that that you know, because a lot of times we imagine people are angry with us and they're not. And we build up this idea that we have this conflict with people and that we really don't have it. But in a community where you can trust that if they had an issue with you, they'd tell you, you can just be at peace and love. And it's a blessing. And that's what Paul is begging the Ephesians. I beg you, he said at the beginning of this chapter, I beg you do these things. Not because you have to, it's not legalistic. And you don't do it in a permissive way where you just accept all behaviors, right? There's some things not to do here on this list. So you balance truth and love. And in the church, that becomes a powerful tool for God that he can use to change cities, to change countries, to change entire cultures, which he's done over the last 2,000 years. I testify to you, historically he's done it. I testify to you that he's done it in my life. And he's done it in a lot of my friends' lives too. So if you've never seen that kind of thing happen before, look for it because it's waiting for you and it's a wonderful way to live life. And you have a lot more joy in all the things of the world that come at you and the clamor and the noise that comes from the world doesn't kind of hit you. It starts to bounce off of you because you know that there's reality at your church where people are actually living with truth and love. There isn't a hidden agenda there. Right? And you can start to build those things. And there's people out there, I should say, that have been really hurt by churches where they are sinning and they are hypocritical. But don't give up on trying to find a body of believers, maybe a smaller one, where you don't have those kinds of things because there's a blessing in that group and there's a hope in that group because you start to see the power of God at work in people's lives, which makes it a lot easier to share with other people that you see the power of God at work in people's lives because you do. It's truth. And you can share it in love. But let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his desire to be in a prison cell and not complain or clamor or be angry about his position and situation, but to actually teach people the opposite. 
and to show us that there is something that he can testify to, that that is a living, healthy, united church. Lord, I pray for the church in America and around the world. I pray for the teachers, the pastors, the evangelists, the prophets, Lord, that they will do their work with peace and love and joy, not to hold themselves over other people, but to come under and serve other people. Lord, I just pray for those people, especially in churches where they're struggling with going online right now and struggling to connect with their shepherd, with their sheep as a shepherd when you can't see everyone face to face. Lord, give them imagination and new ideas. Show that you can move in the church even in these tough times. And I just pray for these people, these leaders at my church, the people that bless me and minister to me. Lord, thank you for those people in my life. Lord, I pray for each person that would take the sacrifice of time to study Ephesians 4 and, and sit through a Bible study with me. Lord, I just pray a blessing on their life. May you show yourself and reveal yourself to them through the church and through the body of the church. May you show them unbelievable kindness. May you show them in, uh, just inspired love from other people that they can see what it looks like but lord to not just be seers of it but to start to do it too that they can become not children tossed about to and fro but they can become mature believers adults in their faith and they can start doing these things in their church and being leaders as servants in the body of christ in jesus name i pray these things amen if you found this teaching helpful insightful you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.